What? Go without horses or mysteries? I say nay! <laughs> Hello, fans of mysteries and fans of horses. Welcome to another episode of Horse Mysteries. I hope you enjoyed our, our new uh, our new slogan, dear. It's <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> you like that? Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to use that from now on. Forever and ever. Forever and ever. I just run into the ground like everything else I do. Hey, it's uh, Horse Mysteries, everyone. We're back with another episode of this popular show about horses involved in mysteries. And what's the show this week, dear? It's called Love Hurts. Love Hurts. We will be talking about that in a minute. But first, before we go there, uh, we're going to do a little bit of horse bits. I'm going to ask Lisa a question about a horse part. I hadn't, haven't thought about this at all, actually. Usually I <laughs> have something in my mind that I want to hear about, but so I'd have to think quickly. Oh. Have we talked about the horse's eye yet? Nope. Well, let's talk a bit about the horse's eye, because they do have interesting eye placement. Unlike, say, a us or a dog, they don't really, aren't really forward-looking, are they? No. No, their eyes are set on the side of their head, so they have pretty much 360-degree vision. So, oh. the, yeah, the exception is a place like five feet in front of them. Like if you hold something up kind yeah. of at chest level, yeah. that is one kind of blind spot. And so horses will lift their heads up or drop their heads down, but more so lift their heads up to look at things that are close to them. Okay. So that's how they kind of adjust or move so they can see outside of that blind spot. But yeah, the horse has not only an eye that's set prominently on the side of their head, they also have the largest eye of any land mammal. So, yeah, they have a significantly larger eye than most other animals. Um, Is it larger than the land whale? Probably. They have different numbers of rods and cones in their eyes as well. So when I grew up, I was always told horses are colorblind. So that, to me, meant they saw black and white. That was how I interpreted that. But then I also was told, oh... Yellow jumps are what will make a horse stop because they can see it. But, yeah, I think they know now that, yeah, the number of rods and cones are different. And so horses have great night vision. They can see at night as well as we can see during the day. They see colors just differently than the way we do. Uh, One thing, because of this great night vision, if you have a situation, especially when, like, a horse, they say what you shouldn't do is set up bright lights in your barn like like say barn barnyard lights because if the horses come from outside and then they come up to the barn and there's bright lights shining in their eyes takes up to 15 minutes for their eyes to adjust to this uh light and so they can be almost blind and yeah have a real hard time seeing things so Um, so they're like soldiers who are wearing night vision goggles in a movie where they turn the lights on and then they have trouble i guess yeah adjusting and interesting yeah so you shouldn't have like those sort of automatic lights no no those aren't supposed to be very good yeah and then um yeah course designers i think for years have I don't know, maybe they didn't know it and do this on purpose, but had, I mean, people have, I can remember watching a TV show, it was a cross-country event that was televised way, way back when, and they were saying, even then they knew, like, horses had a hard time adjusting their vision, and so course designers would have horses going from the field, jumping into a forested area, and then from the forested area, jumping back out, which... I think it, I mean that's quite the test, but it's also now that we know more about the whys and wherefores of why that is, I, highly unsafe, obviously. <laughs> so yeah, not not great. 
but hmm, I think I think there was something else I was going to say about horses' eyes, but I cannot think of it at the moment. Now, just thinking, now they're obviously an animal that is uh, preyed upon by other animals, so the way their eyes work is that kind of evolutionarily help them to obviously keep an eye out for predators and stuff like that? Yeah, and I think, you know, it, yeah, especially at nighttime, it helps them, yeah, see predators, etc. Uh, I did think of one other thing. Have you ever looked inside a horse's eye, like where our pupil would oh, be? Oh, it's square? Yeah, they have a different shape, so mm. it's kind of a, shape, a square, almost oblong. Yeah, um, yeah. And then inside of that, it looks like cauliflower. So... You can see inside part of the horse's eye, and it's like a cauliflower thing. And what that is, because the horse doesn't have eyebrows, and part of the purpose of eyebrows is to, sh- you know, be act as a sunshade, right? We can kind of drop our head oh, down. I and, thought it was just to look disapproving. <laughs> but yeah, we can use our eyebrows as a bit of a sunshade. The horse has nothing like that. Their eyes are set right out very exposed to sun and so they have this thing inside their eye this aperture whatever that actually helps to protect the lens and the inner parts periodically that can get too big in some horses and so nowadays with uh the knowledge that they have one horse that i rode he ended up having to get laser eye surgery and they just put a laser and pop a few of those so that they have better vision Hmm. yeah Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, there we go. Another stellar horse bits. Yes. Okay, so let's uh, move on from horse bits, as much as I enjoy it. And let's uh, turn our attention to this week's story, which, as already has been established, is called Love Hurts. Mm-hmm. Let's give a listen. So our setting was evening of August 4th, 1980. What were you doing? August 4th, 1980? Yeah. August 4th, 1980. I can only think of years in terms of my grade. So I was in grade 8, between grade 8 and 9, I guess. Hmm, that's a good question. You know what? I was probably... Swimming. I was probably swimming, yeah. Yeah. That would have been actually the first year we had our pool, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. It's like when went in that uh, summer of grade 8. Oh, and so my cousin had moved back home, and I was actually spending a lot of time at my cousin's house, because mm. they had a pool. Oh, okay. We were still having our pool put in, and so uh, I spent a lot of time uh, taking advantage of, of their pool. <laughs> cool. So there you go. Yeah. Swimming every day. Okay. And then making my cousin do interminable fake radio shows oh. <laughs> where we played uh, hosts of radio shows that I would make her do, much to her confusion. <laughs> She's very good-natured about it. That's good. Okay, so where did this take place? It was a place called the Davis Farm in Pittsford, Michigan, USA. I've heard of it. <laughs> Wait, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Michigan? Pittsford. Oh, Pittsford. Okay. I haven't heard of it then. No. Newlyweds David and Shannon Davis go out for a romantic evening horse ride around their farm. Hmm. After saddling up their pair of Tennessee walkers, the couple first... Okay, let's stop there. Yep. So what is a Tennessee walker? Tennessee walker, it's an American breed of horse. Okay. It's a gated horse. Yes. So gated horses, most horses have walk, trot, canter, gallop yes. as their primary gates. Yeah. And then there are a few horses that have extra gates like the rack and the amble and the running walk, etc. Okay. And I have read that they are actually just a, what's the term? It's not working. Um, the... the when something goes wrong, errant, 
erroneous. Yeah, well, like if you have a something wrong in your body, DNA goes wrong. Oh, it's mutation. Mutation. That's the word. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you, it's a, a mutation, and but it is a mutation that we have not bred out of them, but we have bred into them because mm. it's beneficial. So yeah. any of those sort of gated horses, Tennessee Walker in particular, what they were used for was on the plantations and various big farms, yeah. and they had a very smooth gait. And they're, they're high steppers. Yeah, and but also don't they also ex- accentuate it with special shoes and stuff like mm-hmm. that? Yeah, they can do that. Yeah, hmm. saddlebreds do that as well. So a gated horse is different than a gated community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, these would have been yeah just smooth horses to ride around, not bumpy horses. So the couple go out on their ride. They stop to chat to their neighbor, a man called Richard or Dick Britton. I know two names a game. It's a nickname. So <laughs> got it. Yeah. So David helps Britton with some machinery, and then the couple leave to continue with their ride. Twenty-five minutes later, David comes galloping back on his horse. Shannon has fallen from her horse and needs help. So David is visibly upset and has blood on his shirt. Richard accompanies David to a shady wooded area where he observes Shannon lying on the ground on her back. Her skin is described as being bluish gray in color. Richard loads Shannon into his vehicle and rushes her to the hospital where she is pronounced dead. Hmm. So Shannon's mother, Lucille, was visiting the couple at the time and so is able to be at the hospital quite quickly. She notices that David has scratches on his arms. She questions him about this, and he explains that the scratches were from branches in the woods where the couple were riding. So upon examination, the doctors at the hospital attributes Shannon's death to head and spinal injuries from her fall from the horse. So in discussion with her parents about the upcoming funeral, David Davis is insistent that Shannon be cremated, which is against the Moore family's Catholic values. While Shannon's parents and Davis previously got along well and had thought highly of one another, Things quickly become very heated. Shannon's father, Bob, goes so far as to threaten Davis with the restraining order before Davis agrees to let the family take Shannon's body back to their hometown of Toledo, Ohio, for burial. Hmm. So Shannon had still been living at home less than a year ago because they were newlyweds. So her parents, Bob and Lucille, are still very involved in all aspects of her life. The family's always been close and they don't have secrets. So their son-in-law who they had understood to be a millionaire orphan, had to sheepishly ask his in-laws to pay for the funeral as he claimed to currently have a cash flow issue. He also states there's no insurance money coming in to help cover costs. However, (laughs) Shannon's family are aware that there was an insurance policy as Shannon had told her parents that the couple had signed insurance paperwork eight days after their marriage. And after the funeral, they're shocked when their orphan, in quotation marks, son-in-law's parents show up for Shannon's funeral. Shannon's family soon learns that many of the things they had been told by their new son-in-law about himself are lies. The grieving parents quickly make the jump from considering the possibility that they not only have a lying son-in-law, but they may also have a murdering one. So Shannon Moore was a 24-year-old who hailed from Toledo, Ohio. She was successful academically and professionally, but she was working as a registered nurse while still living at home with her parents. Uh, She had just come off two disastrous relationships. 
having most recently just broken up with a firefighter she had been dating. Her mother urged her to attend a friend's wedding in Sylvania, Ohio, on August 4th, 1979. Could, could that be Sylvania? Maybe. Probably. Telling her maybe she'll meet someone there. So, at the wedding, Moore meets the charismatic and articulate 34-year-old David Davis, who regales Shannon with his rags-to-riches story. <laughs> so, Davis tells Moore that he, too, is just returning to the dating world after his fiancée was killed in a car accident. Huh. Davis tells Moore that he's an orphan who has served and been wounded in Vietnam. He's a millionaire who owns farms around the country. He was a university-level football player who had played in the Rose Bowl, and he had attended medical school but had made his money in international property development. Sounds like a catch. Self-made man. Mm-hmm. So both Shannon and her family fall in love with Davis, who is outgoing, clever, and a smooth talker. Shannon's dad describes Davis as a real man's man. So as a millionaire landowner, Davis is considered great husband material. The couple have a fairy tale whirlwind romance, and after seven weeks, Davis proposes. The couple then runs off to Vegas to marry on September 24th, 1979. So once married, the couple move to Davis's 100-acre dirt farm in Pittsford, Michigan. He grows dirt? Yeah. He harvests corn, actually, okay. and soy off the farm, while Shannon gets a job as a nurse at a nearby hospital. At the time, Shannon is the couple's only source of income. So, the 24 hours surrounding the incident. So, on the day of the incident, August 4th, 1980, the young couple has decided to go out for a horse ride in the evening. And Shannon's mom, as we had said, is staying with the couple, being there from Ohio. And also present is Shannon's young nephew. So, the nephew asks if he can go for a ride as well, since the group usually go out together. But Davis tells him no. Davis also asks that the dogs do not accompany the couple on the ride either. Um, And typically the dogs come with them. Hmm. The couple ride over to their neighbor Dick Britton's farm, where Davis briefly helps Britton with some mechanical work. Then Britton's son asks if he can go with them on the ride, and Davis says no to him as well. So then the newlyweds head off on their ride. So 25 minutes later, Davis returns at a gallop to Britton's house. He's upset, has blood on his shirt. He tells Britton that Shannon's horse bolted, and Shannon fell and appears badly hurt. Britton accompanies Davis to a wooded area where he observes Shannon lying on her back. Her shoes are off and her blouse is partially unbuttoned. Shannon's skin is grayish-blue and she is unresponsive. Britton transfers Shannon into his vehicle and drives her to nearby Thorne Hospital in Lenawee County. Shannon's parents are called and by the time Shannon's father arrives at the hospital, Shannon has been pronounced dead. Shannon's injuries are deemed to be consistent with a fall from a horse. No autopsy is performed. A blood sample is taken from Shannon's heart and stored. So after the accident. So they don't they don't automatically perform an autopsy? No, I guess not. Hmm. I was uh, talking to my class about that, and because in in the UK, I think any death, yeah, you have an inquest. Hmm. But yeah, here in the US, if it looks like yeah, car accident, dead, fall off a horse, dead, yeah, yeah, take it at face value. So, after the I accident... I wonder Quincy had to fight so I know, I know. I understand him so much more now. <laughs> so, immediately after Shannon's death is confirmed, Davis declares that he will have Shannon's remain cremated. Shannon's pa- parents, who are Catholics, protest strongly on religious grounds. 
A, dis a disagreement ensues, and ultimately Shannon's father, Bob, threatens Davis with the restraining order. Davis capitulates and allows the Moors to bring Shannon back home to Toledo, Ohio, for burial. The exchange with Davis over Shannon's burial is one of the first red flags to be raised. Davis's request for money for the funeral was also odd, as he has initially presented himself to the family as a millionaire. Likewise, his offhand comment that there is no insurance money coming was another red flag, as Shannon had shared with her parents that insurance paperwork had been signed eight days after the couple's wedding. While Shannon's body had been transported to Thorn Hospital in Lenawee County, she was a resident of the Hillsdale area, and the fall took place in Hillsdale County. When doctors at Hillsdale Hospital talked to those at Lenawee County Hospital immediately after the accident for the purpose of confirming Lenawee's findings of a broken neck, Lenawee would not release the body to Hillsdale and would only forward the x-rays. Situations of this type can be problematic in multi-jurisdictional cases. So, I guess. Yeah. It seems kind of odd. That it, yeah. It seems it's like fighting hospitals. Yeah. Uh, so Undersheriff Roger Boardman is assigned to pick up the x-rays. The radiology technician at Hillsdale Hospital questions the diagnosis of a broken neck. When the Hillsdale authorities attempt to learn more, they find that Lenawee County has already released Shannon's body to the funeral home in Ohio. The medical examiner in Lenawee stands firm in his accidental death finding. At this point, there is nothing more Hillsdale authorities can do as the body has already been moved out of state. Huh. Complicated. It is complicated. Yeah. And it's odd that... Uh... It, almost, it seems suspiciously odd that mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they're being I mean, so bulky about this. Yeah, could be circumstance show, but whatever. Okay, so at the funeral, Shannon's parents were shocked when David Davis's parents show up because Davis had told them he was an orphan. <laughs> Shannon's parents soon find out that much of what Davis had told them about himself was not true. He was not a millionaire. He did not own farms all over the USA. He had not been a star football player. He had not been an international property developer. He had not served in Vietnam. He had not attended medical school, although he had taken some advanced pharmacology courses at university. They're also shocked to learn that Davis had two children from a previous marriage and had not lost his previous fiance in a car accident. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'd say he's a liar. <laughs> yes. You know, or he's just confused. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he forgot. Maybe, maybe bonked his head when she <laughs> fell off the horse. Okay. Then, two days after the funeral, more fl red flags are raised when the request for death certificates started pouring into the funeral home from various insurance companies. Although Davis had denied taking any insurance out on Shannon, it is soon apparent that he had a total of six life insurance policies on her to a sum of $330,000. Wow. With David being the ben beneficiary of each. All of the insurance policies expire within a month. Shades of Alidar. It's, uh, it's, okay, well, okay, that's suspicious, but it's also odd that insurance companies are willing to insure you for a month. No, they, they have insured them for a year. Oh, a year, okay, Yeah, sorry. but now the year's almost up. Yeah. So they're going to expire. Yeah. Within a month. Well, that was really lucky mm -hmm. for him. What a... Good timing. Good timing. <laughs> Fortuitous. One might say. Yeah. So, when the Moors learn of Davis's attempt to collect the insurance money, they file an interpleader action in federal court. Davis defaults by not appearing in the lawsuit. Mm. Four days after the funeral, Davis tells his in-laws he's leaving town as he needs to head out to the desert to think. 
<laughs> he drops by their home in Toledo to drop off some of Shannon's clothing, then leaves, returning to his farm a week later. So meanwhile, suspicious suspicion continues to mount. This, so, guy's, a, this guy's a bit of a creep. Yeah, I think so. This is my, this is my like, I'm summing up. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm jumping the gun here. I don't think so. I should maybe allow the more, more evidence to amount <laughs> to, to, before I make any more snap, uh, I, snap I think, decisions. I think, your, uh, I think your read is pretty good. Oh, okay. Yeah. So immediately, those close to Shannon become suspicious of Davis in spite of the Emmy's ruling of accidental death. Shannon's mother, Lucille, was suspicious of the story Davis initially told, as she knew that Shannon was afraid of the horses and never rode faster than at a walk. Hmm. Tennessee walkers are also a breed known for their smooth gaits and have been purpose-bred for generations as good, quiet, and reliable pleasure horses. Yes, it's hard to imagine a horse that's called a walker (laughs) getting too excited. Yeah. So in addition to the red flags that Shannon's parents had observed regarding Davis's family work and educational background, the Davis's neighbor, Dick Britton, was raising his own concerns. Hmm. After returning from the hospital where he dropped off Shannon after the fall, he and his wife go to the wooded area where he had picked Shannon up for transport to the hospital. There he notices two trees that have circular abrasions on their branches. The ground had been disturbed, and there's fresh horse manure deposited in the area close to each of these trees. It appears that the horses had been tied up in the area for a length of time, Hmm. rather than being on the move when Shannon fell, as per Davis's story. Britton also observes that the only rock in the area has blood on it. So within a month, both Dick Britton and the Moors begin campaigning, campaigning for authorities to take a closer look at Shannon's case. Shannon's body is exhumed. She was autopsied, but it was determined once again that her injuries were consistent with those found as a result of a horse riding accident. However, a talk screen also shows that she has an unknown drug in her system. Hmm. Drugs. Yeah. The Moores had launched a letter writing campaign to persuade the Michigan Attorney General's office to continue to investigate. The Davis's neighbor, Dick Britton, also urged the authorities to look at new evidence. He sends a letter to the Attorney General's office, contacts reporter Billy Bowles at the Detroit Free Press, and tells him everything he knows about Davis. Bowles does extensive research and writes an article exposing Davis's past insurance camps, which include Davis collecting insurance on two previous fire claims, including setting fire to the barn across the road, <laughs> and also collecting disability from the car manufacturer he worked for after he faked an injury. The article helps to get the case reopened. Detective Al Schindler works to get Shannon's body exhumed. Not an easy task, since she has been buried out of state. She is autopsied on August 25th, 1980, by Dr. Steve and Renata Fazikas. It was determined once again that Shannon's injuries, which included a gash on the head and bruises on her face, hand, and arm, were consistent with those found as a result of a horse riding accident. However, a toxicology screen also showed that Shannon had an unknown drug in her system. Toxicologist Thomas Carroll noted a significant peak at the tox screen, but no specific chemical can be identified. Samples are sent to other labs for testing, including the Michigan State Police Crime Lab, but no other lab observes the same peak. Carroll continues to review his results. Investigators then learn that Davis has taken advanced pharmacology at university. Michigan State Police Detective Donald Brooks, who has caught the file, hypothesizes that Shannon was chemically immobilized prior to death. 
He engages the service of toxicologist Dr. Robert Forney to look more at the blood and tissue samples. Brooks also interviews area veterinarians who would have dealt with Davis in the course of their business on the farm to see if they have any idea about the drug that may have been used. While many vets are interviewed, only one has a suggestion about a drug, and that drug is <sighs> succinicoline chloride, also known as SUCS or SCH, brand name Lysanon. SCH is an animal tranquilizer that causes paralysis in the muscles involved with breathing. In the horse world, SCH is often a drug used in pain medications and sedatives for immobilization or euthanasia. This drug suggests, suggestion matches Brooks's hypothesis as a drug SCH would paralyze everything but the heart. So SCH has been used in some high-profile murders in the past, including the murder of the Hamas operative Mahmoud El Mabdo in Dubai, who was killed by Mossad agents. In the California serial killer and respiratory therapist Ephraim Saldivan, and in the 2006 murder of Kathy Augustine, the first controller of Nevada, who was killed by her third husband, who also happened to be a nurse. Huh. So SCH works with the molecules of acetylcholine, or ACH, which is crucial to the chemical reactions between the nerve endings and the muscle fibers. SCH acts by blocking these chemical reactions, paralyzing both voluntary muscle activity and respiratory ability. When used as an IV injection, SEH acts within seconds. When used subcutaneously, SEH acts more slowly. Suffocation typically takes place within five minutes. Huh? Initially, Carol and Forney are not receptive to Brooks' SEH hypothesis for a number of reasons. SEH shouldn't have reduced peaks, as were seen in the samples taken from Shannon. SCH has a strong affinity for water, so can't normally be extracted from tissues. And SCH breaks down into competent component parts that are normally present in the body, so therefore is usually almost impossible to trace. In order to eliminate SCH as a candidate, Carol tests the samples using a gas chromatograph, but obtains an identical match to the unknown peak found earlier. Carol and Forney repeat the test five times and each time receive the same results. Carol and Forney then arrange to test the, the samples for drugs in the same family as SCH. They use a mass spectrometer at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. What? Yeah. Carol and Forney then have to develop a new process to prepare the sample. But all the extra work is worth it, as the sample comes back as pure SCH that was present in Shannon's body. Hmm. Shannon's body is exhumed a second time in 1981, this time to look for needle marks. Peter Goldblatt, MD, anatomical pathologist, finds a cyst consistent with the injection of SCH. Two puncture marks are found, one on the shoulder and one on the wrist. High levels of SCH are detected in the bruised tissue surrounding the injection sites. James Harrison, MD, PhD, examines Shannon's brain, brainstem, and spinal column. He finds a slight contracoupe injury, which is a typical type of injury one would expect to find to the brain when a moving head collides against an immobile object, but the injury is determined to not have been significant enough to have rendered her unconscious. <laughs> So while all this has been happening, yeah. Davis quickly had sold the farm 
And after his attempt to collect the insurance money is foiled, he then moves to Florida with a new girlfriend. Davis buys a sailboat, and he and his girlfriend begin sailing around the Bahamas. In September of 1981, Davis is indicted for murder. On October 31st, 1981, a one-man jury indicts Davis for first-degree murder. In October of 1981, Davis is also put on America's Most Wanted a list. A one-man jury? That's I guess. odd. Yeah. I don't know how that works. Well, it works really well. This is one person. <laughs> yeah. There's no disagreement. It's probably Dick Britton. <laughs> On he did it. Yeah. On December 24th, 1981, the FBI, acting on a tip, traveled to Haiti to arrest Davis for the murder of Shannon. On the same day, Davis calls an attorney in Michigan, then abandons his last girlfriend, Monica Yulzi, and his boat in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, telling Monica to return to Florida as he has to go back to Michigan to talk to his lawyer. Davis then flees before he can be arrested. Hmm. Eventually, the TV story, Unsolved Mysteries, picks up the story. The episode being in conjunction with the Mich- being made in conjunction with the Michigan State Police. It first airs in the U.S. in November of 1987, but no leads are forthcoming. The episode then is re-aired on December 28, 1988. In January of 1989, a Hollywood stuntman who had previously been vacationing in Samoa remembered that his flight instructor there was an American called called David Meyer Bell. He thought that Bell and Davis could be the same person. He calls the show's toll-free number. Hmm. The FBI... What? I said Samoa. Samoa, yeah. The FBI travel to American Samoa and find Davis at his workplace, the Tafuna International Airport in Pago Pago. (laughs) Davis has been living in American Samoa for the last four years under an alias, working as a pilot for Pacific Island Airways. So he could fly? He could do a lot of things. (laughs) Catch me as you can, guys. Yes, yes, pretty much. So Davis, now overweight and gray with a slovenly appearance, at first denies that he is David Davis. He was not aware that a show had been made. However, in a short time, he admits to his true identity and is peacefully arrested. He is charged with the murder of Shannon Moore Davis and is also charged with federal flight to avoid prosecution. The America's Most Wanted show featuring Davis airs in Samoa the day after his arrest. <laughs> Just in time. Yeah. So at the time of his arrest, Davis is 44 years old and has been on the run for nine years. Hmm. He had been re- residing in Samoa for the previous four years and is now married to a 23-year-old Maria Coletti Sua. Together, the couple live in a shack near the beach. Davis is transported to Hawaii for further questioning. So what the investigators learn. Investigators learned that over the preceding nine years, Davis has variously been employed as a doctor, a nurse, a pilot, and a harpsichord player. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. The most dangerous of that is a harpsichord player. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, a badly played harpsichord is is deadly. Mm Before the trial, Davis moved for what's called a Davis-Fry hearing, but this request was rejected. A Davis-Fry test allows for the admission of expert testimony regarding novel scientific evidence, but only if the evidence being presented has gained general acceptance among the relevant scientific community. Okay. And so did he present what he was going to talk about in this? No, he's saying um, if they're going to bring in new evidence it only they can only present it if everyone is familiar with it. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's what. Okay. Yeah, but they said no. 
which is good, <laughs> as we will see. Yeah. So, the trial, the People v. Davis, commences in Michigan in November of 1989. In the course of recreating the scene, the prosecution suggests that partway through the romantic evening horse ride, Davis decides the couple should stop in a secluded area to have sex. While Shannon starts undressing, Davis hits her on the head with a rock, then proceeds to inject her twice with the SCH. Well, let me just say right now, that's not how you have sex. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. <laughs> Okay, so during the trial, jurors learned that prior to meeting Shannon, in 1978, Davis had created a backstory and set up a false identity, securing a Florida driver's license under the name David Meyer Bell. Hmm. He then embarked on a mission to meet a young lady and had asked a succession of women to marry him. Kay Kendall broke up with him in April 1979. He then started seeing Jean Homan in April 1979 and was still dating Homan when he started seeing Shannon in August of 1979. Former girlfriend Kay Kendall testified that Davis had told her that SCH was a nearly perfect murder weapon as it was a drug little known outside of specific medical communities and the drug itself broke down into components already present in the human body after a short time. He referred to using it as the perfect crime. Former girlfriend Jean Homan testified that a week before Davis was to marry Shannon, Davis told Jean that he was employed as a CIA agent and was currently working on a dangerous covert government mission. Mm. He would not be able to see Homan for a year because, as part of his cover, he had to pretend to be married to Shannon. This was in order to protect her. He said he would be back in touch with Homan when the mission was over. In approximately June of 1980, Davis resumes his relationship with Jean Holman and told her his mission would be complete in three to four weeks. Once the mission was complete, he told Jean that the government would be paying him $250,000 for his services. <laughs> Evidence was given at the trial that certain items of clothing belonging to Shannon vanished after she died. Her shoes were collected from the scene and given to Davis. They were never seen again. Her clothes were also lost by the funeral home. Roberta Sherling, who worked at the funeral home, testified that on July 25th, 1980, she had observed that Davis not only had scratches on his arms, but he was also wearing pancake makeup and concealer on his face, which appeared to be bruised. <laughs> Jean Holman testified that on July 24th, 1980, four days after the funeral, she and Davis headed south to Florida for a holiday. On the way, Davis stopped in Toledo, Ohio and dropped her off at a mall, saying he had some errands to run. Shannon's parents testified that on the same day, July 24th, Davis showed up at their house to drop off some of Shannon's belongings. He told them he was heading off to the desert to think, and he would be out of touch for a week. Jean Holman testified that Davis never told her he had actually been married to Shannon, and he did not act like a man whose wife had just died. They stayed together in Florida for a week. Toxicologist Robert Carroll and Dr. Or Thomas Carroll and Dr. Robert Forney had had to develop a new complex procedure to trace a drug in Shannon's tissues. They then had had to get the technique accepted by colleagues and published so that the evidence could be admissible in court. I see. Carroll then had to create a simplified explanation of the technique so that it could be understood by the jurors. So that's important. Mm -hmm. Shannon's cousin, cousin Tony Abrams, testified in court that when she was staying with a couple in the summer of 1980, she had observed 10 to 12 syringes in the fridge and medicine bottles in the freezer that were labeled Anectine, a brand name for SEH. <laughs> it was felt that the insurance policies were the smoking gun. It was also felt that the scene was staged. 
David did not take the stand over the course of his trial. The jury was out for only 2.5 hours. Davis was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Prison. Davis protested his innocence and filed many appeals. Davis contended that the trial court erred by admitting Forney and Carroll's test results. The court concluded that the analysis was admissible. Davis argued that Caroline Forney's novel scientific testing could not be replicated or independently validated. The court disagreed. Well, they've already established it. I guess that's the important part mm-hmm. of the, the yeah. important, I mean, obviously the discovery of it, but also the fact that it's peer-reviewed and accepted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, smart guys. Davis <laughs> contended that the court erred in concealing critical evidence in discovery. The court yeah, disagreed. CAA job. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Davis contended that the trial court erred in its instructions to the jury. The court disagreed. <laughs> Davis contended that he was entitled to a new trial due to new evidence that had come forth. Mm. The court disagreed. Davis went on to contend that he was entitled to a new trial due to irregularities in the admission of evidence and also due to his failure to testify. The court disagreed. Finally, Davis argued that he was entitled to a new trial due to the court denying his attorney's petition for costs, but the court disagreed. Davis served his time at both the Ernest C. Brooks Correctional Facility and the Marquette Branch Prison. Well, they must have been happy when he got into prison. (laughs) Shut this guy up. (laughs) Yeah. Murder was a subject of many different forms of media, including books and made-for-TV movies. Mm-hmm. Robert Henning, Hemming wrote With Murderous Intent, a book. And there was a made-for-TV movie, Victim of Love, the Shannon Morris story. I thought, what's her name? And Rule wrote one, but maybe not. Because of his efforts in the case, pathology scientist Thomas Carroll was awarded Michigan State's highest civilian citation, the Michigan Department of Police Good Citizenship Award. <laughs> It seems like not a great name for a a grade five kid could get that for, you know, picking up bottles in the road or something. Yeah. So Carol later went on to become Palm Beach County Chief Clinical Forensic Toxicologist. Yeah, he left the state. He was so upset about this. (laughs) Got this stupid award. Uh, Citizenship. Yeah. The procedure Dr. Robert Forney developed to isolate SEH is now known as the Forney Technique. Uh, Richard Dick Britton died at age 82 on January 10th, 2021. His obituary stated that, quote, one of Richard's proudest moments was being an informant for the horseback murders, which occurred <laughs> in 1980 near Pittsburgh. He was a person who drove the victim, Shannon Moore, to the hospital after she supposedly hit her head on a rock during a horseback riding accident. It was later proven that her husband, David Davis, drugged and killed her. Reporter Billy Bowles, who spent seven years of his life researching Davis and helped to crack the case, died in 2014. Shannon's parents, Lucille and Bob, died of age-related issues in 2008 and 2012, respectively, and David Davis developed a congenital neuromuscular disease and died in 2014. The end. What a character. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's terrible that he murdered someone, obviously, but everything else around it is so, so absurd and bizarre. I mean... His serial lying and mm-hmm. just the fact that he was a, a doctor, which seems insane. He's obviously a sociopath. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah. Like, out and out, sociopath. Like, just, But yeah, just, that's, just nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that poor girl, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, he saw her coming a mile away, I guess. Yeah, so obviously, uh, led, a, led a sheltered life. 
you know, pretty clear, like how much her parents were involved in her life that, you know, in a way he was her escape from that and, uh, not a good escape. No. And, you know, like it, 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 well, it just seems, you know, like when you hear his story, it just seems preposterous. And so then you're like, well, how, do, how come these people believe that? But obviously they were kind of... Yeah, they wanted to believe it, you know. That's... Maybe they wanted to believe it. I think there's also a bit of naivety there as well. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. You know, it's sad. I mean, but, yeah, I think, you know, like marrying well, like there's so much mm-hmm. put on that. And... Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh... Well, lucky you avoided that. <laughs> oh. You're funny. <laughs> uh, that was good. Well, thanks, Rudy. I don't think we... Oh, well, I don't want to say it, but we don't have any comments. But I don't think we have any comments. And I say that because I don't have to bring my phone outside <laughs> All right. So we had uh, a comment on last the last episode, which was uh, all about the fine cotton affair, the uh, the horse of a different color, as Lisa called, called it. And uh, Louise... Our faithful correspondent, Louise, was kind enough to write. And Louise wrote, Oh, I felt so bad for bold personality that they didn't rinse off the hair color after, but left it on overnight. I bet they didn't even do a patch test first. Sometimes that stuff can burn your scalp, although maybe a horse's hide isn't as sensitive. Yes, it is tricky to get the desired color with hair dye. For instance, using an auburn or other reddish shade on white hair can turn it pink. Er... Or so I've heard. <laughs> Sounds like that's coming from personal experience. Oh, I don't. I don't know what gives you that impression. <laughs> yes, it does sound rather personal. Well, hey, since we just have a minute, do horses uh, do sorry, horses wouldn't have as sensitive skin as we have, would they? Oh, probably as sensitive, if not more, because they, you know, they say a horse can feel a fly land on it, oh, right? Okay. You know, and you know they twitch their skin oh. and swish their tail. I feel even more bad for that for yes, both personality. Because yeah. one time I I thought it'd be kind of fun to dye my hair blonde, and it was not fun. <laughs> I have very sensitive skin, as you know, uh-huh. and I did not enjoy that. In fact, we had to stop it. Mm-hmm. I just ended up with a kind of a reddish hair. I remember that. It wasn't that bad. No, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wanted to look like, uh, you know, Rutger Hauer in... Uh, Blade Runner or something like that, but instead I, I look like Carrot Top. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> this is my finest moment. But anyway, you know, just the reality. I thought I could, I was just like, oh, I can I can handle this. And then about five minutes into it, I was just like ready to run out of this, <laughs> dip my head in the nearby fountain. It was so painful. So they washed it out. That ended that experiment. Never again, I said. All right, dear. Uh-huh. What is the story for next week called? Well, that's going to be a surprise for you because I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. And the question is in the title, so I'm not going to tell you till next week. Oh, all right. Well, I'll have to wait then, everyone. That's, uh, till next bye week. Two weeks, yes. yeah. Everyone, let me just tell you before we go how to get in touch with us. It's pretty simple. This is what you do. You go to uh, sneakydragon.com, and there you'll find episodes of Horse Mysteries, and you are more than welcome to leave a comment underneath the show. You'll find it there quite easily. Or you can uh, email us. Our email is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. We'd love to hear from you there. And I keep threatening to uh, get a Facebook page going, and I keep uh, putting that off. But one of these days, I'm going to kick myself in the butt and start a, a, a Horse Mysteries page. 
hopefully sooner than later. So uh, that would be another nice place. So very soon that will appear. We'll let you know when that happens. So then uh, that will give us a place where we can uh, post some follow-up stuff as well for these stories. Well, that's it. That's it for this show, dear. Mm-hmm. This was a fast one. It was. Unlike that interminable one I had to do. It was like four <laughs> hours long reading about caterpillars. <laughs> this was a breeze. But anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you in two weeks with another episode of Horse Mysteries. And the next episode is actually a real mystery. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what it's about. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.